Consider a time in your life when your window of opportunity was closing and closing fast. Now, I always like to find a good deal. After all, I came from a, a family where my father enjoyed negotiating at department stores, which is generally frowned upon. But, yeah. I like to find a good deal, but I've always disliked shopping. One Friday morning in 2007, I woke up, got a bowl of Lucky Charms, opened my desktop computer, and clicked on a link on my newsfeed, realizing that one can do all his Black Friday shopping online. Now, Black Friday is the Friday after American Thanksgiving when companies whose expenditures outpace their profits, they try to get rid of aging inventory by, by drastically slashing prices and in doing so could get back in the black. They can make somewhat of a profit before their year end. So I received this link and this Black Friday as my window of opportunity. I tried to think of everything we needed or could possibly need, but I also bought a new set of steak knives. <laughs> I bought a, a souped up slip and slide for the kids, vacuum that could remove deep stains from our white carpets, Found an amazing deal on a cosmetically flawed TV and hiking boots because, yay, who knows? We may take up hiking. And even though we had a toddler and a baby, hey, here's a good deal on a camping tent. Why not? It was only one day, and the window to purchase was rapidly closing, so I pretty much ignored my family for about 24 hours, and I got well into four digits. I am ashamed to say this. I got into four digits into our MasterCard. Now... Uh, thankfully, we had a little buffer in our savings account, but four digits is a lot, is a lot, and I'm not normally like that. But I acted with unusual aggressiveness because I wanted to sort of get mine before that window of prosperity closed. There it was. We can benefit from this. It's closing soon. In the middle of the 8th century B.C., God's people were reaping the benefits of a decade-long period of prosperity. Specifically, the rich had gotten richer, but all of God's people could see that this window of prosperity and security in their nation and in their lives, it was closing fast. The threat to the north and the strongest kingdom in the ancient Near East was Assyria, and they were regaining strength. Assyria had been preoccupied with their own infighting as well as their own threats to the north and to the east, but having fought those threats, and having squelched those threats, so seemed squelched the prosperity of Israel and Judah. The time was short for them not to be ruled by another power, for them to have this money and have this production. So what do wealthy people do when a window of prosperity is about to close? When time is short, they get more aggressive. They pursue getting mine. i got to get mine before that window closes. And that's exactly what happened amongst God's people. They got uh, protectionistic, protectionism. That's a, that's a term you may have heard in the news a lot lately uh, because a lot of nations lately have, have gotten more protection, uh, protectionistic. Why do people do that? They do that because they fear. They fear that, at least one reason why they do it, I'm not saying this encompasses everything, they fear what might happen to them. They fear, where is my prosperity? Where is my financial freedom? Where is my security? So they get a little more aggressive. And before we judge those kind of people and judge 
God's people, Israel, 8th century B.C. Consider the closing windows on your life. Some of you come from nations where there's political instability, there is social insecurity, and thus there's economic unrest. And if you're honest, a window is closing for people like you. And you're here in Grand Cayman in part to get yours before one day you return home, right? To get what you can and go home. And if you're from Cayman, you might be the last generation to inherit property or or hold a secure job that you know you can't lose. The temptation is to take advantage of whatever or whomever you can to reap the benefits while you're still in that good position, right? That's a temptation. And we face in all kinds of little decisions in our lives every day. I've heard many of you guys ask out loud, how can Grand Cayman, how can there this financial system last as it is. It may close one day, and some of you sense that. And our response is often to be hypervigilant, to to sort of protect what's ours and be aggressive about growing what's ours. Such was the case for God's people at this point in history, though for them it looked a little bit different. Their efforts to aggressively add to their bottom line was trusting in other gods other than Yahweh. And specifically, Trust in the economic gods. Economic gods like the local Canaanite god, Baal, or Baal. You'll recall that Israel's god, Yahweh, he established a unique relationship with his people through a covenant in which God promised to be their god. He promised to provide for his people. He promised to take care of them always and forever. And he even gave tangible, sign on the dotted line, guarantees, commitments. Here is how I've loved you. I've delivered you from slavery. I've given you a land to call your own, a land of milk and honey. It's going to be wonderful. And in turn, what I ask from you is your trust, your love, your worship, your obedience. Just trust me, God says to his people. But when the window of prosperity looks like it's closing on them, they kept singing their prayers to Yahweh and do their equivalent of church. Yes, they showed up, but they also trusted in an economic strategy that worked pretty well for everyone else around them. And that was trust the god Baal. Baal was a, a, he's a Canaanite god, god of fertility, god of rainfall, god of agricultural productivity. So you could see why people would turn to him if it seemed like he was doing some good things. And it seemed like those who trusted Baal, who made a few sacrifices to him, who visited, even partied at his temple, because that's what happened at Baal's temple, those people were doing really well for themselves. They experienced a significant amount of prosperity in their life. A large bank account. Things are going well. And that, that kind of economic strategy for doing well for yourself may sound superstitious, old-fashioned, almost sort of mythical. No one would really do that now. So I think it would help us to think about anything we trust other than God to give us that extra advantage in getting ours, getting mine, getting security, getting prosperity. Maybe as long as I have this tool, this money market index, something you have gained in your business experience, as long as I have that, I will stay ahead of others. As long as I keep our competitors looking poorer than, they, than I look. As long as I appear smart and accomplished and intelligent and polished in meetings with my bosses, with our partners, then I can stay ahead. Right? As long as I live in that posh neighborhood, then I will feel secure. Right? As long as I network with those people, I'll be okay. And we trust in all kinds of things 
right, to make sure we secure what's ours and get more of what we think should be coming to us. And so when that happens, we kind of rationalize a lot of times, don't we? Well, God understands. God, doesn't God say God helps those who help themselves? No, he doesn't say that, by the way, right? But we rationalize. It's okay. The great theologian Billy Joel, also writer of Piano Man, for the best, you know, he said, hey, we're only human. We're all allowed to make our share of mistakes. That's what we kind of rationalize. Is that what God says? What, what does God actually say to his people when they trust something other than him to sort of get theirs before it's too late? Open to the prophet Hosea, chapter 1. That's going to be on page 637 if you're going to use one of the Bibles we provided. And you're going to need a Bible this morning, so please hail down a Bible. They're in these chair pockets. Page 637 in the Bibles we provided. We're not going to have the scripture up on the screen today. So Hosea chapter 1. And we're going to read God's response to his people who thought, you know what, what we're doing isn't so bad. I'm going to remind you as I do so, each week we're examining a, a different way God uses a writing prophet in the Old Testament to intervene in the lives of his people, to start and sustain a relationship with him. Well, what's happening is God's people wander. But God cares enough about the relationship to send these people called the prophets to intervene, to get their attention. Hey guys, wake up and get them back on a walk with God again, on the path to walk with God again. His people often think they're doing okay, not that bad, as is the case here. They're still going to identify themselves as Israelites, children of Abraham. We're still doing all the sacrifices you asked for, God. But deep down, they truly trust the God of economic prosperity. And God has something to say to them through the prophet Hosea. What's it going to be? Maybe a friendly reminder. At most, it's going to be a light scolding, right? Well, let's see what Hosea has to say. Chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll continue from there. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went, Hosea did, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When Gomer had weaned no mercy, remember this child is called no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of children of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. They shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
We'll stop there for now. These are nice, good, and hopeful lines we read at the end, but it's very likely that still ringing in your ear are some of the initial lines we read, and you're wondering what is going on. I saw, even as I read those words, a confused look on some of your faces. Did Ryan just say that? Yes, he did. To recap, God asks his prophet, Hosea, to marry a woman whom Hosea knows ahead of time will cheat on him repeatedly. She's going to bear children from other men, and she's going to get so caught up in her love affairs with other men that she's going to end up becoming a professional, and she's going to become a prostitute. All this, Hosea knows, and yet God asks him to marry her anyway. Why would God do such a thing to someone? Because he wants Hosea, and in turn all of God's people, to really feel how they are treating him, how they are treating God. God has been a husband to his people. He's protected them. He's been providing for them. He's been keeping them secure and delivering them when they're in trouble. But when things turn worrisome, a bit fearful, that window is closing, they find their protection, their provision, their deliverance elsewhere in a form of economic prosperity that has worked for other people, the God bail. God says, what you're doing, my people, what you're doing is nothing short of infidelity towards me. You're cheating on me. And if you're like me, and you look at your world, whose window of prosperity may seem to be closing, and what you're really trusting in isn't in a heavenly husband to provide, protect, deliver, but rather the best research, the right connections, protecting yourself, professional performance, more friends to insulate and secure yourself or the success of your kids to secure a long-term future, then these words are supposed to impact you and me like a punch to the gut. Breaking our marriage vows. Betrayal. Infidelity. Cheating. That's what we're talking about here. And it's tempting to just move on and not think that applies to us. This was to all of God's people. So we're meant to feel that deeply. And yet, that glorious yet in verse 10, read that again. Yet, the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, shall be said, children of the living God. In other words, God is going to stay faithful to his covenant, even when we have not. You're going to get the land. You're going to get the offspring. You're going to be my people. God pursues us, friends, even when we wander. God remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. God never gives up on us even when we give up on him. He is that kind of God. How, then, how can we be certain that's true? Because, Ryan, you say, Ryan, God feels distant to me. How can I be sure How can I tell that God pursues me and hasn't given up on me? In Hosea chapter 2, God answers this question in multiple ways because he pursues us in multiple ways. He's that kind of God. So we're going to look at the multiple ways you can tell that God pursues you. Number one, God pursues us through other people. He pursues us through others. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's read that together. Say to your brothers, you are my people. 
This is God speaking. Say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Are there people in your life who are reminding you how loved you are by God? Because that's a sign that he's pursuing you. And at the very least, I'm doing that right now. You're here. I'm reminding you. Yes, there's harsh words in here because it's a warning. But it's because God loves you and he cares for you. This is not just your neighbor being nice when they speak up and say something. Hey, God loves you. God is behind this. Say to your brothers. Say to your sisters. Are there people in your life who sometimes give you a warning, a gentle warning that they're concerned for you if and when you wander from God. It's easy to sometimes see those kind of people as maybe they're a bit harsh or they act like a little holier than thou. Do you ever thought maybe that's God speaking through them? After all, he's encouraging people, plead with your mother, plead. So when people come into your life and they encourage and they plead, don't just see that as coincidence. You may want to see that as God pursuing you like he does his people here. So God pursues through others. He also pursues us through oft undetected protection and provision, which often goes undetected by us. Protection and provision. We see that starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She she, She who conceived has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. In other words, the sugar daddies. Therefore, I will, this is what God says, I will hedge her, hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She, will, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. We don't often detect it or see God's hand in it, but he protects us from a whole host of dangers, things we don't even realize sometimes we're being protected from. Let me give you an example. By God's grace alone, did God allow me to remain a virgin till the day I married Katie. And God, let me just say this up front. God forgives us through Christ when we don't make it to marriage that way. I want to say that. But by his grace, he let me remain a virgin when I married Katie. But I want to also be honest with you. Uh, that was not totally by choice. I can, I, yeah, I want to be discreet about this, but I can, I counted five, I can count five situations. After became a Christian, five, at least five situations was I was in the midst of an encounter with the opposite gender, and weird stuff would just happen, like weird stuff. Like my ride one time bursted in on me <clears throat> and said, I got to go. My dad was rushed to the hospital. Oh, okay, and I just got to go. I wasn't a Christian at the time, so I was like, dang it. All right, I, I, another time I used to carry on this mini pocket knife on my, on my keychain. I still actually have, that, have a knife. Uh, and somehow it came open in the pocket of my shorts, and it stabbed me. <laughs> and so that was done at that point. And I, it just had all these situations, and I look back and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Lord, you are so gracious. I never thought about how you were protecting me. And all the while I thought you were being harsh to me. Wonderful. <laughs> 
He also provides for us. We see in chapter 2, verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain. I was the one who gave her the wine, the oil, who lavished her silver and gold, which she went, they used, she, they, because it's God's people and Gomer, she used, she spent on Baal, used on Baal. You see? People used God's quiet gifts, all the ways he provides for us quietly, thinking it came from themselves or it came from their economic ventures, whatever it might be, and they spent it in a way that wasn't faithful to God. So he pursues through provision and protection. He also pursues through discipline. Circumstances, we see them as circumstances, but really it's discipline. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 9. We'll read through verse 13. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, hey, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and with jewelry and went after other lovers and forgot me. Here, the beloved experiences poverty. Right? We see in these verses poverty, embarrassment, a lack of joy, social discontent, right? no longer getting invitations to parties and get-togethers. And these are experiences not uncommon to us too, aren't they? And sometimes we just see these things as like, man, I'm just having bad luck. These are just happenstance. I'm just going through hard times. Did you ever stop and think this might be God's hand in your life, his loving discipline to drive you back to him? Because it may very well be. Not just coincidence. Not just difficulty. But how are you being unfaithful to God? How are you being unfaithful to your husband? And we, we would sing a song, right? Your love is fierce. God's love is that way. Like a windstorm coming into our lives. The New Testament talks about how God disciplines those he loves like a father does. You're not an illegitimate child. So God intervenes in your life to draw you back to him, sometimes through painful circumstances. Here, we're told directly in verse 13, I will punish her. And that's how it feels sometimes. But God is pursuing you through that. We may not be considering it. God also pursues, number four, he pursues through wooing us. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I'll speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Wonderful. In a few moments, we're going to sing about God's unstoppable, never letting you go love. Never giving up love. We're going to sing about that in a moment. I wonder when we sing these songs about God's love, do we just sing them? Do we ever think God is singing to me? God is wooing me. He is putting the spotlight on me and sharing his love in tender words. I want to encourage you to consider that as we sing in a few moments. Again, number five. God pursues through future hope. We see that in verses 16 through 18. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. 
And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground. I'll abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. These are so helpful to have reminders of a time that's coming where there'll no longer exist any temptation towards infidelity. No longer war and strife with people. Only safety will abound. A lover gives us a future hope. I will be with you. I will protect you now and always. And the sixth way, and the one I want to talk about here the most for a minute, is God pursues us through permanency. Starting in chapter 2, verse 19. Let's look at that together. God pursues us through a permanent kind of relationship, permanency. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens. They shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil. They shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her, uh, sow her myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. I will, have, I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. I want to read into chapter 3 as well because it's going to give us some more context. And the Lord said to me, to, this is to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I'll explain that in a moment. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You, you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be, uh, be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod, household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in the fear of the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. I wanted us to read on into chapter 3 because in chapter 3 we see what I call the lover's quarrel. Often we think of the lover's quarrel as being between two parties, right? Two lovers going at it. But the greatest quarrel for any lover that any lover faces is the quarrel within himself or herself. It's the quarrel of can I keep on loving, caring, forgiving that beloved, my beloved, when they keep on betraying me. And notice the present tense here. She is loved by another man. She is an adulteress. God loves his people, though they turn to other gods, though they love cakes of raisins, which was an ancient aphrodisiac, by the way. It was like her way of saying, here, take this little blue pill. In other words, the lover didn't stop betraying. The beloved didn't stop betraying. And yet, he loves her anyway. So he buys back his beloved, right? And you see the love there in Hosea, but you also feel the frustration in his voice, don't you? Look at this. You, may, you must dwell as mine. You shall not play the whore. You must not belong to another man. He's demanding justice from her. He's demanding that she put things right. If you've ever loved, you know the internal quarrel of being a lover. How long do I let this go on? How long do I forgive and receive that person back time and again? Or you've watched someone close to you. Keep on loving and you think to yourself, that's not right, that's not fair, that's not just. Don't be a doormat. 
God, our heavenly husband, faces this kind of lover's quarrel within himself. In fact, if you read the rest of Hosea, you can, you can go chapter by chapter. You'll see the ebbs of flow of justice and mercy. You'll see God be like, you are not my people. You are not loved. And then you're going to be my people. I am going to be your God. And, and there's this tension. There's this quarrel within God. What's he going to do then to solve this problem within himself? he will come up with a permanent solution. And he hints at it at chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Look at that verse 19 again. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, on the one hand, right? Righteousness and justice. And on the other hand, steadfast love and mercy. Literally, covenant love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Now, in Hebrew grammar, repetition is a sign of intensity. So we hear betrothed, 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 which is like, you are married. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to be most married to you. It's going to be permanent, married forever. But how is he going to do that when his people constantly wander, betray, have lustful eyes for other things? How's he going to do it? By solving the lover's quarrel. He's going to get married with justice. He's going to put everything right and in covenant love and mercy. This kind of just love will produce in his people then faithfulness. We're going to want to be faithful to a God who would love us in that kind of way. Verses 20 through 23 tell us how he's going to make that love permanent in a way that produces faith with us. Look at this, starting in verse 20. I will betray, oh, sorry, verse 21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. They shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. Now, on the surface, this is just a basic comment about rain, fertile soil, and growing crops, which signal productivity and prosperity. But God wants to say more to us, because this is Hebrew poetry. There's a little more going on. He wants to say more to us than just basic photosynthesis and how things grow. In that day, he says, right? He's talking about a future day. A future day from the time of Hosea, he says, I will answer the heavens. In other words, God will answer to himself the heavens. He's going to answer to his own righteousness, justice, and fairness. He can't let betrayal, infidelity go unpunished. That's not fair. That's not right. We would hate a world where injustice went unchecked forever. And yet, So God will answer the heavens, and yet God will also answer us. The heavens shall answer the earth. He'll answer us. Mercy, committed covenant love, will shower on his people like rain until a crop is produced in them, grain, wine, oil. Notice then that the productivity, the prosperity is you and me. It's not stuff. It's not the good life. It's us. God is producing something great in us, helping us look more like him. God is talking here about a future day for this permanent solution to make love just. And that day is when Jesus Christ goes to the cross on our behalf. In Jesus, that future King David we hear in this passage, that future king that both Israel and Judah will agree on we hear in this passage, in Jesus, God answers to himself in righteousness and justice. On the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21 talks about this, 
How on the cross, Jesus becomes sin for us so that God can punish Jesus and justly punish our betrayal, justly punish our infidelity. And so it's fair and it's just. And then Jesus, God answers us with covenant love and mercy, right? God let Jesus go to torture so that one day he could be with us forever. He loves us. He cares for us. And so there's this just love happening here. And we think, well, wait a minute. So God's, because through Jesus, God still forgives, even though I messed up a thousand times, even though I've been stubborn at that same thing, I've been weak at that same thing, I've given in again and again? And the answer is yes. When you're wondering if God's given up on pursuing you, he's determined a permanent answer to his lover's quarrel, and that is Jesus Christ crucified. That is the sign to know that God is still pursuing you because justice and mercy are both satisfied and meet there. Fiorello LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City during the worst days of the United States' Great Depression and World War II as well. This guy was a colorful character. He uh, used to ride on New York City fire trucks. He would raid speakeasies with the police. He took entire orphanages to baseball games. When the New York City papers went on strike, he would read out the local comics on the radio. This is the kind of guy he was. So one cold night in January 1935, LaGuardia turned up to a uh, night court that served the poorest ward of the city. It was not unusual for him. LaGuardia dismissed the judge who was sitting on the bench that night, and he took over the bench himself. And within a few minutes, a tattered old woman, she came in and sat in front of him. And she was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. Now she told LaGuardia, that her daughter's husband had deserted her, and that her daughter was sick, and her two grandchildren are starving. So she stole bread. Now the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. He said, I know this is sad, but this is a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor. She's got to be punished, justly punished, to teach other people a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. He didn't know what to do. He was experienced that lover's quarrel that God experiences with us. I've got to be just and fair on the one hand because people betray. The person has done what is wrong and has been unfaithful. And yet, mercy, mercy. So he turned to the woman and he said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, LaGuardia was already reaching into his pocket. Stepping down from his bench, he extracted a bill, threw it into his famous hat, and he said, here is the $10 fine, which I now remit, which I now pay. As Jesus stepped down from heaven's judgment seat to pay the punishment for our betrayal, our infidelity, and in doing so, God answers heaven, but he also answers us. He is the hound of heaven, ever pursuing you and never giving up on you. Let's pray. God, we want to confess honestly to you that we have betrayed you. That in in different ways, whether it's feeling a window closing on our lives and us trusting in other quote-unquote gods other than you, other ways of taking care of ourselves, other ways of providing for ourselves, other ways of getting ahead for ourselves, we have betrayed you. We have cheated on you. We have broken our marriage vows. And we are sorry. 
And God, sometimes there might be people here this morning who feel like I've just messed up so often. There is no way that God can forgive me again. There's no way that God would still chase after me. And yet, there are all these ways you show us in Hosea that you are still pursuing us very tangibly, but none more evident and more sure than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you stepped down from heaven to pay the just price of death and punishment that we so rightly deserved. Thank you. And you did it so that you could be with us now and forever. And that we can know that you will never, ever, ever give up on us. For your love is unstoppable. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.